from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Had a great time uh, on Friday night out at uh, Trinity St. Paul United Church in uh, Toronto, Bloor Street and uh, Spadina, and uh, was fortunate enough, privileged to host an event. Uh, It was a presentation of our good friends at Conspiracy Culture, and it was uh, the legendary heavyweight uh, G. Edward Griffin uh, speaking about the United Nations and the New World Order. And had a good crowd, and it was great to meet uh, many of you um, who, who listen into the show, and I appreciate you coming out and uh, to hear Edward and to support uh, him and, and Conspiracy Culture and uh, to support this program. Uh, so Steve and Brian and Neil and uh, um, uh, and others, Murray uh, in Thornhill, good to hear from uh, all of you. And see you all and uh, meet you in person, put a, put a face to the voice. And uh, also... It was uh, a pleasure to see my good friend Victor Vigiani uh, out at that event, and uh, he drops by and darkens the doorway here from time to time, and uh, good to have you back on the program tonight, Victor. Well, I must say that Friday night was a very, very special evening. It just struck me as one of the most powerful presentations that I've ever witnessed. Uh, the man uh, was, uh, Mr. Griffin was... As powerful a speaker at 81 years old? Yes, uh, yes. And we know him, of course, from... uh, Normally we hear him talking about uh, the Federal Reserve, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, that that seminal work, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve System, and then uh, his other huge uh, magnum opus was um, World Without Cancer, uh, mm-hmm. talking about uh, B-17 and, and, and Laetrile and, and very controversial, uh, a lot of uh, conflicting uh, information out there about uh, whether or not mm-hmm. uh, B-17 can, can cure cancer. However, uh, he had that audience, uh, you know, they were captivated, and myself included, and I know you were as well. Uh, but, uh, Victor, you've been very busy. You've been speaking to, uh, to small groups as well, out and about in, in libraries and, and, uh, places like Port Credit and, um, west of Toronto, uh, talking about sort of your bailiwick, which is UFOs, extraterrestrials, the evidence uh, that uh, um, extraterrestrial civilizations are interacting with us, and the government knows about it, and they're not telling us. And what what sort of reaction are you getting from these these small local groups that come to hear you speak about this topic? Well, actually, the the last three presentations, actually four presentations that I've done, uh, Richard, um, the, the the first couple have been frequented by about 35 to 40 people at these small libraries, Port Credit, Lauren Park. And um, the reaction that I'm getting from a lot of the, the attendees is, my goodness, this cannot possibly be true, Victor. Uh, what you're telling us is um, something, you, you know, are you fabricating this information? Uh, and what I try to present is the evidence, and I try not to convince anyone about it. I'm not trying to say this is the way it is. I try to put forward the documentation, you know, from uh, a number of different sources. 
And what I get from a number of different um, entities within the audience, I'm talking high school students from, you know, uh, poor credit secondary school to senior citizens and business people that are coming, and they're saying, my goodness, we've never been um, uh, associated with this information before, uh, and, and how can we get more? How can we find out more about what's going on with this whole issue? Right. When you show them, I mean, you, you have mm-hmm. a very powerful mm-hmm. uh, PowerPoint presentation. Right. Just chock full of information. You're talking. We're talking about classified documents, government documents, which show uh, that various agencies within the U.S. Canadian government are concerned about extra or UFOs. Uh, they've, they've tracked them. In some cases, they've engaged them with fighter aircraft. Mm-hmm. And yet, the official word from government is they don't exist. We don't know anything. Uh, and, and, uh, I mean, when, when you, when they see these documents, this is, this is a paper trail. This is, if there was a court case, I mean, these, these would be, ex, you know, entered in as exhibit A, exhibit B. You know, you put forward a very compelling case. That the government knows about UFOs. How do people react? Do they? They must be gobsmacked. Well, they are. They're they're um, they're really surprised. Uh, uh, they head they they shake their heads and say, "My goodness, this cannot be true." The last presentation that I that I did um, in um, in Port Credit, there were several um, individuals um, who who just sat there and said, "This cannot be true. How can our government and our media?" Be lying to us or or misrepresenting this information in the way that we are or the, the way the media is doing. Um, and uh, I guess the whole idea is that we're presented with a different reality here. You know, on a day-to-day basis, we hear about, you know, the floods, the storms, the, you know, the political situation, uh, the financial situation. But we'll never hear about the information regarding the fact that pilots air traffic controllers, military people at the highest possible levels are engaging extraterrestrial craft on a day-to-day basis. And this perplexes a lot of people. And I try to put this information forward in a logical and a non-spectacular, sensationalistic way. You don't need to sensationalize it. It's pretty sensational. That's right. Well, you're right. People don't, unless it's, it's, it's flashed across the front page of the Toronto Star, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, for people, it doesn't exist. And our next guest actually has, has connected the dots as to why the mainstream media doesn't pay attention. They might give it, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek treatment on page six, or if it's even if it's too big to ignore. If let's say, for example, the sixth man to walk on the moon, Edgar Mitchell, says, "Yes, UFOs are real. I've seen them, and so forth." Uh, I've been told by top people at NASA that we are engaging extraterrestrial civilizations. It'll get a day's coverage. Mm-hmm. And then it'll disappear. It just goes off the radar. Yeah. Well, our next guest, as I say, is going to address that. Uh, he um, really connects the dots. In his new book, Missing Times, he explains how and why major news organizations have worked covertly with the U.S. government. 
to manage public opinion about national security issues like UFOs for nearly a century. But but especially since World War II when journalists and spies, he says, became best of friends. Today there may be little difference between major news organizations and the U.S. military intelligence establishment when it comes to national security issues. Terry Hansen is a former technical magazine editor. He's followed the UFO controversy for much of his life and has occasionally written about it for various media, including National Public Radio and the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. He's also spoken before various groups about UFO-related censorship and propaganda. In addition, he's organized and moderated two symposiums about the science and politics of UFO research for the Science Museum of Minnesota in St. Paul, one of the nation's largest science museums. Hansen holds a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's degree in science journalism, both from the University of Minnesota. He was a founding partner of KFH, sorry, K, KFH Publications, Inc., a Seattle computer magazine publishing company. He's a licensed private pilot with ratings for single-engine aircraft and gliders and skipper of the uh, converted diesel-powered wooden fishing trawler New Rosa. He lives in the Canadian Gulf Islands with his wife Jess, and it's a great pleasure to have Terry Hansen here on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Terry. How are you? Hello, Victor. Good to be with you. Uh, it's Richard here. Victor joins me in studio as well. Okay. Sorry, Richard. No worries. My my mother says uh, she can't tell us apart on the radio. We sounded too, uh, very similar. You do sound similar. <laughs> oh, that, that can't be true. He's... He's got a much better voice than I do. Ah. Anyways, welcome, welcome, my goodness. Uh, Terry, you, you talk about this, um, uh, you know, after this, as an example. We had this major uh, wave of UFO sightings back in the early 50s. And it was at that time, you say, that these alphabet intelligence groups like the CIA finally decided they needed a system in place sort of to manage the information stream that was coming out in light of all of these sightings. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, I think it's probably a good idea to back up a little bit uh, further in history before the 1950s. Um, you, You may be aware that in the early 20th century, there was a gentleman named Charles Fort, and he wrote a series of popular books uh, which were comprised of cases that he had dredged out of the scientific literature and ship's logs and so on that uh, pointed out there were some pretty odd things being seen in the atmosphere. Uh, many of those were very similar to what we today call UFOs, but that term hadn't come into, into use at that time. So uh, those books kind of made a big splash in, in popular culture for a while. They were quite popular and then the subject kind of disappeared uh, and didn't re- really reemerge until uh, after World War II. But uh, we know that um, there was probably quite a bit going on in World War II that the public wasn't told about because, uh, at least in the United States, there was a law called the War Powers Act, which gave the government the ability to control all the media during wartime so they had a very extensive censorship apparatus, and uh, they put out a lot of propaganda to cover up uh, 
different things they didn't want the public to know about. So the public was really in the dark about what was happening in World War II, and I think there was there, there's undoubtedly uh, we know now that uh, there's quite a bit of UFO activity going on during World War II, but it didn't surface in the in the public arena because the press was so tightly controlled by the military. Uh, after the War Powers Act expired at the end of the war, uh, the, the media were suddenly free to uh, begin reporting openly what was going on. And so I think it was at that point that all these UFO or flying saucer stories kind of exploded into newspapers across the, the continent. Um, and um, it wasn't until uh, the CIA was created by the National Security Act of 1947 that uh, the government had a way of uh, dealing with these reports. Uh, The CIA, a lot of people believe the CIA is just an intelligence-gathering organization, but if you go back and look at their charter and and look at why they were created, uh, one of the reasons was that the government uh, needed a way to censor and control the news and create propaganda, and that task was handled or was given to the CIA after uh, after World War II. So um, the CIA really began taking a more active interest in the UFO phenomenon at that point. And uh, you know, when there were a few uh, major episodes of UFO activity, particularly in 19. 19- 52, when UFOs were spotted over Washington, D.C., and so on, created quite an uproar. Uh, the CIA got involved in, well, they, they recommended, basically, that the topic uh, be uh, basically debunked or ridiculed, and, and uh, they would try to uh, eliminate uh, UFO and flying saucer reports from the media. So that's kind of uh, uh, where, when they became involved in, in a very overt way. And, of course, the Air Force played a big role as well, but not in a more open... Uh... And naval intelligence, I'm guessing. Yeah. Listen, Terry, we'll take a time out. When we come back, let's drill down on this topic. How okay, sure. the CIA uh, co-opted the media, uh, perhaps to this very day, in its handling of the UFO issue. You know, why don't we see serious reportage on this very important topic. I'm not sure exactly what's going on up there, uh, but we need to find out and we need some serious uh, journalism. And why aren't we getting it? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network and Terry Hansen, The Missing Times. Back with more. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Terry Hansen is with us. The Missing Times, news media complicity in the UFO cover-up, and Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network is with us. Let me give you an example of what we're talking about here when we talk about news media complicity in the UFO cover-up. And again, going back to uh, Terry Hansen's The Missing Times, when UFOs appear, national news agencies seem to fall silent. In late 1975, newspapers across the state of Montana reported dramatic sightings of unidentified flying objects. 
the UFOs displayed particular interest in the nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles deployed around Great Hall, uh, Great Falls, of course, home of Maelstrom uh, Air Force Base. Although these mysterious sightings continued for months and were widely reported and discussed regionally, they were ignored by national-level news organizations. Why? Why, Terry Hansen? Well, um, I, I argue in my book that it really has to do with national security, that uh, certain topics are, uh, you know, just more easily dealt with by the government if the public doesn't know what's going on. And um, in this particular case, uh, the, the Malmstrom Air Force uh, ICBM flyovers, we know from uh, people who worked worked for the Air Force um, as missile uh, control personnel and and also maintenance personnel that during the mid 1960s and again during the mid 1970s there were quite a few overflights of our ICBM US ICBM complexes in Montana and elsewhere by UFOs and in some cases the UFOs actually shut down uh, entire wings of ICBMs. Um, how they did this, nobody really knows, but um, the UFOs would appear and uh, the security guards would report their presence and then shortly thereafter the missiles would start going offline. This is rather remarkable because all the missiles were really independent systems and um, there was no no way to explain how all these different systems, which were separate, uh, would be affected by some uh, single uh, source of interference. So there was a big to-do over this. And I think uh, if you think about it for a few minutes, you'll realize that this is not something that the military wants the public to know about. But uh, how do they, they silence... Our... No, but how do they silence the national news media? They've got then to have uh, editors at major newspapers, uh, assignment editors, uh, executive producers at major networks on site. Well, I think it's really a multi-level process. Um, one of the ways that news organizations find out about what's going on in the world traditionally has been the wire services. And uh, we think of, you know, Reuters and UPI and AP and and the New York Times news services. Now, um, if you go back and study the the history of censorship, going back really to World War One and even earlier, the wire services have always worked very closely with the military uh, during wartime and, and other national security situations. So, if you control the wire services, um, that's a you know that's about ninety percent of the battle right there because if you if you can prevent a story from going out over the wires, uh, no most newspapers and news organizations around the world don't really know what's happening. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, the local reporters in Montana, for example, did pick up on the story and they wrote quite a few stories about this UFO activity, and it was pretty widely known in the Montana area among the the grassroots that this uh, this phenomenon was taking place. I mean, people were seeing them, and uh, it was pretty much common knowledge. But the story just sort of seemed to be bottled up right in the Montana area. Now, there's other ways of kind of uh, tricking the public into thinking nothing is going on, um, and one is that uh, 
the story really didn't appear outside of Montana, as far as I'm aware, until it showed up in the, the National Enquirer newspaper. Now, most people know the National Enquirer, or think of the National Enquirer as being a kind of a questionable source of information. If you read a story there, you know, the tendency of a lot of people in the intelligentsia is to just sort of dismiss it and and laugh it off. Yeah, they're all about I married Bigfoot and Elvis uh, seen flipping burgers in Kalamazoo. Yeah, exactly. But what what most people don't know about the National Enquirer is that it was started by a gentleman named Gene Pope, who um, had worked in the CIA's psychological warfare division before he uh, started the, or he actually bought a newspaper from the Hearst chain, and using money that uh, really we don't know where the where, where his money came from, but he had a lot of money in his pocket suddenly after he left the CIA, and he bought this newspaper and turned it into the National Enquirer. So, uh, as I argue in, in the book, um, it, it looks very very much like the National Enquirer was a kind of psychological warfare device by playing up the, um, the UFO topic in the, in the disreputable newspapers like the tabloids, and then ensuring that the story gets played down in the in the big city papers like the New York Times and so on, uh, it could, it puts kind of a psychological spin on the whole topic. People think, well, only only people of questionable mental capacity believe in these these stories. You know, the New York Times isn't reporting it, or the the Toronto newspapers aren't reporting it, or whatever. So therefore, there can't be anything to it. But what they don't know is that behind the scenes. Uh, the CIA is using its contacts with the media to uh, discourage them from reporting the story. Okay, Victor Vigiani, over to you. Yeah, I, actually, Terry, what I want to do is, in, in one of the chapters of your book, you mention um, a, one of a, a story that was told to you about someone who was waiting at a train station, waiting for a train, and um, the the officials at the train station said, "Well." Uh, you know the the train has arrived according to our schedule but the person standing on the on on the uh, on the podium said well the train's not here in front of me i can't see the train the train hasn't arrived yet but the schedule says that it has arrived and the people the officials at the uh, you know the, who who run the train say well the train is here and regardless of the fact that the the train is there or not there, they stick to the, to the to the story. The train is not there, but the officials say the train is there. And sure. we are uh, there's the metaphor right there. And the the media seems to be saying the train is here, but we're not seeing the train. Um, can you follow up on that metaphor for us? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think you know. If you really study the way the UFO topic is reported by the media, uh, what you find out is that there's kind of two worldviews represented by the media. One is the worldview of, you know, the small town newspapers and local reporters, which is, you know, closer to what people actually experience. And then you have the, the big city newspapers, the East Coast uh, establishment uh, media, that uh, is very close to the, you know, the power centers, Washington D.C. and so on, and they tend to give you a worldview that is uh, shaped by uh, the power elite. You know, the the the, uh, 
the Pentagon and the White House and so on. So you have these kind of two two points of view, official reality, I call it, and and folk reality. And actually, folk reality is is quite uh, a bit closer to what's actually happening. But you know, we if you if you get most of your news from the big corporate uh, news organizations, you just get the official story, and that's very you know very uh, kind of carefully tailored to present a certain point of view. Um, if you study the way propaganda works, it's really kind of a two-step process. There's The first step is censorship, which uh, prevents you from knowing what's actually happening. And once that's been achieved, then the propaganda is pumped out by a you know, thousand different uh, outlets to create what they call a, a pseudo-environment or a false picture of what is actually taking place. So you can kind of see this happening in the case of the Malmstrom sightings, even though the story received quite a lot of coverage locally and you know by small town newspaper reporters, the big uh, national papers don't want to deviate from the official story, and so they they just don't report it, or they give you uh, you know the Air Force's point of view and that that sort of thing. So. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on there. Well, uh, the the other point that I want to try to get to is the the whole Woodward and Bernstein kind of um, approach to bringing forward uh, a message that will completely distort or disturb the the national consciousness uh, the way they did it in the Watergate affair. Um, it, 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 I refer to it as as the glass ceiling. And what is it in your mind and in your analysis that stops these kinds of stories about the UFO reality from piercing through the this glass ceiling about the reality that we all know that the military are you know are totally in touch with the fact that you know the jets are scrambled to chase these things and we've got government documents coming out of our yin yang about the fact that these things are being uh, you know seen in our atmosphere. What stops? these, uh, you know, brilliant journalists from saying, you know, listen, I'm going to come forward, I'm going to talk about this. How does this happen? How do these journalists become muzzled about the the true reality of what's really going on? Well, um, you know, it's a, there's no one single answer to that. It's really a variety of things that are going on. For one, one example is that many journalists, although you know, they appear to be independent of the government, are sometimes working for the intelligence communities under in deep cover within news organizations. So although they pretend to be journalists, they're actually their job is actually to prevent the news from, from going out. Um, another thing is that the many of the people who own the media, the, the you know, the um, CEOs and uh, top top level editors uh, have agreements with the intelligence community not to cover certain types of stories or to cover them in a certain way. Um, so there's a whole long list of, of methods by which the, uh, the, you know, the, the military and the intelligence community can exert influence over what gets reported and, and what doesn't get reported. A lot of times if you're a reporter and you, uh, you take an interest in something, Let's say nine uh, eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you start doing stories about the the liquid metal that was found in the in the basement of all the nine eleven buildings. 
what you'll run into is that the editors will suddenly, you know, your higher level editors will say, well, we're just not going to report that story or our readers aren't interested in that or this is a conspiracy uh, theory. You know, we don't, we don't deal in conspiracy theories. So, you know, you just get shut down right away. And I think it's the same way with a lot of UFO coverage. If something uh, sensational is happening and you find out about it and you go, go try to uh, write the story, you often find it's very difficult to get it published. And um, Leslie Kane, uh, who wrote a, a very good book recently about uh, government officials who have had UFO experiences, uh, talked quite a bit about her attempts to uh, write about different different UFO-related topics, and she found that she just couldn't get past the editors in most cases, and the big city papers wouldn't wouldn't touch the topic. Yeah, you well, her, her book went uh, number 29 on the New York uh, bestsellers list. I mean, UFOs, generals, and, and, and pilots come forward on the, on the record. I mean, you can't get much closer than that, but the fact that her book, as, as beautifully written as it was, really never got to any major journalistic entity that could say, listen, this lady's got something here. Let's look at it. How, how would be... Uh, you know, how, how could be you know, CBS, NBC, ABC? How can those three major entities in the media, you know, consortium? How could they be totally shut down in their coverage of this? Uh, how does that work? Well, let me give you an example. Um, in the 1960s, there was an intense amount of UFO activity across the U.S. As you probably know, and. Well, of course, a lot of this was happening around the ICBM sites and other military bases, and um, it was pretty well known. I mean, it was well widely covered through through newspapers around the country. But um, at that time, uh, the CBS television network broadcast a program called UFOs, Friend, Foe, or Fantasy, mm-hmm. and it was a very prominently placed uh, documentary carried by CBS Television, in which um, uh, Walter Cronkite basically threw cold water on the whole UFO topic. He said, "You know, well, it's really just cases of mistaken identity and so on and so forth. There really wasn't anything to it, so don't worry about it. It's all just kind of a, you know, a, a myth that's gotten out of control." Well, of course. Uh, most people watching television at that time were rather naive about the the way things work in the real world, and they they had no suspicion that there was any, anything more to that than just a straightforward reporting job. But um, uh, some time ago, a researcher discovered in the archives of the Smithsonian Institution a letter by Dr. Thornton Page in which he confessed to another CIA colleague that he had played an important role in shaping the content of this CBS program along the lines of what the CIA's Robertson panel Mm -hmm. uh, recommended. Terry, let me just get you to hold on there. We'll uh, come back and continue to discuss the CIA and the media and its handling of the UFO issue. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network in studio. Terry Hansen on the line and your calls as well. Welcome when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us.
The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. When it comes to uh, UFOs and uh, the mass media uh, and the, the cover-up, I suppose, it's, it's, um, it's important to understand the level of penetration of the media by intelligence groups. And I think uh, uh, Terry Hansen, uh, author of The Missing Times, has made this point, and, and uh, Carl Bernstein really sort of brought it to our attention in that famous Rolling Stone article back in 1977 when he talked about um, about this very thing. And I, uh, you go back to the early 1950s and, and Joseph Alsop, who was the biggest syndicated columnist in the U.S., and he was sent... Um, he was sent to the Philippines to cover the, the election there, but he wasn't, he wasn't sent, uh, by his syndicate, his column uh, syndicate. He was sent there at the request of the CIA. And, and the history of the CIA's involvement with the American press continues, uh, to be shrouded by an official policy of obfuscation and deception. And, um, I guess this use of journalists, I mean, what, to what extent is this use of journalists uh, still prevalent by the CIA. I know, I know it was suggested by Bernstein that, that around the early mid seventies, uh, that this, the, the, the CIA really cut back sharply on the use of reporters because of pressure from the media. But, but to what extent is this still pre- prevalent today? Do you believe that the CIA is really pulling the strings in, in, in major news outlets, in particular with the UFO issue? Well, I'm very skeptical that anything changed radically after the uh, church committee hearings in the 70s and, and the uh, uh, exposure by Bernstein and some other uh, writers about this uh, intelligence community connection. Um, and I think really if you look uh, critically at the way a lot of current issues are being reported today, particularly the Iraq war and some of the other wars the U.S. is involved in, and the events of 9-11, I think you're struck by how little actual critical reporting gets done about those topics. We hear really very little uh, reliable information other than that which comes from the the Pentagon and uh, the, the official government point of view, so to speak. Uh, so I think that really is a an indication that very little has changed. And uh, also, I, I've cited this in some of the talks I've given that during the Bush uh, Bush Jr., Bush II uh, administration, um, uh, they put uh, propaganda experts in charge of uh, National Public Radio and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting so that uh, really it doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the impartiality of, of those organizations when it comes to reporting. So I think it goes on pretty much as as it always has, and it actually may be much worse today than it was in the 1970s. Um, you know, often the intelligence community will will claim that they've backed away from certain policies, but then quietly they go back to doing things the way they've been doing it for over a hundred years. So yeah, that, that would be my suspicion that it's worse than ever. I mean, how else to explain how essentially uh, we've seen the the the, the, the disappearance of of investigative 
investigative reporting and it's uh, anyone who attempts to do if Bernstein and Woodward were to try to uncover Watergate today they would be laughed out of the newsroom and called conspiracy theorists Victor go ahead yeah I actually Terry what I want to do is 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 sort of take us to the more current um, feeling about all of this and uh, with the Ob- Obama administration and even with with Clinton um, Clinton I know made an effort to look at uh, lifting a bit of secrecy regarding other issues uh, within the administration but I guess my question to you is that with all of the the blatantly overt information about this the government documents you know the documentation that you've cited uh, the Robertson panel, the, the obvious, you know, influence of CIA. How can any presidential entity, you know, be it Obama with his, you know, uh, seeking of greater transparency, how can these people be kept away from this issue? Are there people saying, you know, Mr. President, no, you can't talk about this? Or like, how does that work when, when, when a president says, I want more transparency in my administration, and we know this stuff is going on. The military knows. How is it that the the, the 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 White House, for example, or the Pentagon, or the NRO, or whatever it happens to be, can possibly stay away from addressing this issue and maintain that kind of silence? How does that happen? Well, I think you know we just came through a a major political campaign, as you know. <laughs> And it was remarkable during the whole campaign how few of the real issues were mm-hmm. were ever addressed. It was, you know, it was all kind of a, a mudslinging and and a very superficial um, discussion of of world events, but not really much uh, much of substance. Politicians are remarkably skilled at sort of dancing around the issues and not not dealing with anything. Of real, uh, real substance. So I think I'm not really convinced that either Clinton or um, Obama have any real desire to open things up. They're pretty much uh, cut from the same cloth as earlier presidents, and you know they're, you know, unless somebody asks them, and they very, very rarely have a press conference in which which they get. Uh, nailed with any hard-hitting questions anymore they're pretty well shielded from that type of thing mm-hmm. they really have no no incentive to uh, to bring the subject up or or answer answer any kind of pointed questions really excellent point yeah i mean uh, who can pull your who can pull your uh, your um, your press credentials it's the secret service you know stand up and ask uh, an embarrassing or, or pointed question, and uh, you don't work yeah. for the Washington Press Corps anymore. That's you know when these KGB agents came over to consult the the White House on the inst- instituting the Patriot Act, they were amazed at how effective the U.S. has become in, in stifling dissent. They needed gulags in the Soviet Union. Here, uh, we just ostracize, ridicule, discredit. Back with Terry Hansen, The Missing Times, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, as we discuss UFOs and the complicity of the mainstream news media in the cover-up. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Terry Hansen is with us, the author of The Missing Times. We're talking about uh, the mainstream media and the UFO cover-up and its role in that cover-up and its uh, how it was co-opted or is 
being co-opted by various intelligence groups. Victor Vigiani joins us in studio from Zealand News Network. Terry, you know, uh, from time to time I'm asked to go on uh, uh, TV shows. I'm, 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 I guess I'm a bit of a curiosity because of the subject matter, and, and uh, they're somewhat amused or bemused, and uh, they always ask me the same questions, and it's, why do people continue to believe in this stuff? Or They're interested in the phenomena, not the content, and I always say because you and uh, others like you have completely abandoned the playing field when it comes to reporting on this stuff, and so where do people go for their information? They go to the Internet. The word Internet now has become synonymous with the word conspiracy, which is, you know, absolutely absurd. But how has the Internet really affected public awareness in terms of the UFO topic? Well, I think the Internet on the whole has been a very good influence. It's obviously a mixed bag. I mean, there's a lot of information that's not very trustworthy and quite questionable, but at least the information is out there and you can you can do your own legwork and do a little cross checking and you know see whether things hold up and, and have some substance i think you know the the parallels between the old soviet union and the us right now are quite remarkable in that um you know in the old soviet union there there's a very good book by um hedrick smith a new york times reporter who uh, spent quite a lot of time covering the Soviet Union, and he wrote a book called The Russians, and he described the society as it was back before the collapse of the Soviet Union, where basically everyone didn't trust the media, they didn't trust the government, they just naturally assumed that everything from an official source was probably wrong or a lie. And I think the U.S. has come around to being that type of situation as well, and that you know, Americans uh, and probably most many Canadians are quite distrustful of what they're being told by the corporate media and what what they get from the power political power centers. So uh, the internet has kind of broken the embargo on a lot of different kinds of news that the government uh, doesn't prefer the public know about. So I think uh, you know, generally, it's been a good influence. All right, let's uh, take a call from Patrick, who's been very patient, waiting on the line from Toronto. Patrick, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Terry, yeah, I wanted to ask you um, how familiar you might be with these uh, living organisms that have been uh, filmed, I believe, uh, using infrared technology, using two cameras by Trevor James Constable. He has uh, some documentaries called The Invisible Realm. It's regarding... Um, Supposedly the sky is full of these, uh, uh, they seem to be living organisms that are invisible to the naked eye, but as of some years ago, they've begun to be uh, captured on camera. So the suggestion here, I guess, Patrick, would be that these could be part of the, the UFO phenomena, these living, these are not mechanical devices, these are actual biological entities that people are seeing exactly. in the sky. Okay, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Terry, I am not, but uh, Wayne, if you'd like. I am familiar with that idea. I haven't followed uh, what's what's happened in recent years. My interest is really more in the the way the the media process uh, UFO type material. Uh, I don't really have an opinion on that particular theory about what um, the UFOs are. Um, so uh, I can't really shed too much light on it. I'm afraid. 
I, I, let's, let's sort of take off on that question, too. Um, there, there have been a couple of really powerful journalists and, and researchers over the past couple of years that have really brought forward some key issues uh, about the UFO phenomenon. One of them is Leslie Kane. And uh, I'd like to get your understanding of, of how Leslie uh, has managed to bring forward some really solid documentation, uh, not of her own making, uh, by the, uh, the, the written work of, of uh, pilots and, and generals and other military officials about the UFO issue. And uh, how do you see Leslie's uh, intrusion into the reality uh, of, of, the, of this issue within, within the media? Well, it's very uh, revealing how the book has been handled. I mean, she... She, the book has done fairly well. It's gotten a lot of attention, but uh, to a large extent, the mainstream media has kind of turned a blind eye to it, and as they have done for for many decades now. So it's like, you know, in a, in a way, it's she's done a great job writing that book and putting the facts out there, but the impact in the media realm is relatively minor, and I think we're we're sort of treading treading water, sort of spinning our wheels here. If you go back to the 1960s, there was a journalist named John, John Fuller, and he wrote a number of uh, very popular books and very well-researched books about the UFO phenomenon. The, the first one, I believe, was Incident at Exeter, and uh, I just reread this book. It's a very, very fascinating book because Fuller went out and talked to witness after witness after witness uh, people that were watching these UFOs maneuver over the high tension lines in in uh, the East Coast areas, and he he really nailed it down from a journalist's point of view that there was no question that this phenomenon was real, and he made a splash back then. There were still a few publications like uh, Look Magazine that would publish people like Fuller, but today there really aren't. Um, if you were to go to say the Atlantic. Magazine or or McLean, McLean's magazine or something like that, and proposed to do a serious article about the UFO topic, they would just slam the door in your face. They they really just don't want to hear about it. So I think you know the the whole uh, official reality worldview has been consolidated and and nailed down, and there's just not they're not allowing any uh, any points of view other than the official point of view right now, unfortunately. So if, if this is sort of um, you know, set in concrete, you know, if this is the position of the media, that irrespective of the fact that these, you know, number of documented experiences, it doesn't matter what kind of, of really relevant, uh, sustainable information, it doesn't matter what kind, other than, you know, the, the old proverbial landing on the White House lawn, uh, it, the media will not entertain any discussion or any discourse on this. Uh, I, t- to me, as a as a as a as a journalist and one who, you know, tries to get to the bottom of this, this is a, a totally untenable situation. And w- what perpetuates that mindset, Terry? Well, it's perpetuated by the fact that most of the media are owned by a small handful of corporations that have a vested interest in cooperating with the government on a lot of different issues. You know, some of the big media companies are owned by corporations that are in the business of making armaments. So mm-hmm. right away they have a, a very strong financial incentive for 
backing any kind of military point of view, you know, that the government puts forth. So it's kind of become the military-industrial media complex, and in a real sense, there's just this core group of corporations that control most of the information the American public gets. But like you say, at the same time, we have all this information on the Internet, and there's all kinds of excellent books being written, so the information is there for people who want to seek it out. In any event, Terry Hansen, The Missing Times, available to book buyers, and uh, the website is themissingtimes.com? Yes, that's right. And I wanted to point out also that I just recently republished the book as a Kindle ebook, So you can buy it electronically for $2.99 now, which is a pretty good deal, I think. All right. Instead of buying New York Times, get the book, get the Kindle version. Terry, thank you for this. Victor Vigiani, Zealand News Network, always a pleasure. Thank you. Great to be with you. Tim Spring, good work behind the board. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that ride. It always promises to be a wild one. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.